that I was going to be put in, you know, maybe I succeed and I get put in a position where I don't have, you know, and then it gets into imposter syndrome and, you know, some of these other things is like, am I, am I gonna, you know, I, I mean, I'm from Florida, so I'm using this term, you know, am I going to get over my skis? You know, am I, you know, cause it was just basically a lot of my life. I was just, I was just waiting for somebody to come in and go, yeah, everything you said is a bunch of BS. Like, you, you know, we know where you're coming from. We're just going to call you on it now. And we just, we just like you to leave the profession. That was Dr. Phil Richmond on this week's episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security. Greetings, DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome, or welcome back. In this week's episode, we are talking with Dr. Phil Richmond. And I do joke a little bit because I think it's ironic that his name is Dr. Phil, because there's the Dr. Phil from Oprah, who really is all about helping people solve problems and live kind of their better life, or I think that's what he's all about. I never really watched him, to be honest with you, so I'm making that assumption, but... What I think is interesting is Dr. Phil in veterinary medicine now kind of has the same goal or the same path that he's trying to walk in, that he's really trying to better the industry as a whole and help build better cultures and help people really find meaning in the work that they did. Phil talks a lot about the idea of struggling with alcoholism, anxiety, depression, a lot of stuff that I feel a lot of us struggle with and really resonate with. And what I think is interesting and as I apply it to other situations in my life, is that in this conversation, I talked to a lot about Phil about personal struggles that I had with myself um, and really just tried to be vulnerable and open about a lot of situations and struggles that I've dealt with or I am dealing with and how they affect me today and to get somebody else's opinion who has kind of walked that path and dealt with those same kind of issues. And I think I wish that more of us could do it um, on a regular basis. And I hope you have somebody out there that you can really be open with and, and talk to. And I'm really lucky that Phil is willing to share his time and listen to my own personal stories, even though Phil and I haven't really known each other for that long. But I think it's incredibly valuable in the impact it can have on your life. And as I think about you know, my legal education, you learn about this process as you're studying for the bar exam and how you need to write the essay portion. And they teach you this method called the IRAC method. And it's I-R-A-C and it stands for issue, rule, application, conclusion. And what you need to do is you need to take the unique set of facts that you're given, look at the rules and how they apply to those certain facts, and then draw, you know, how do they apply? The A and then C, draw a conclusion from that. But how you're able to apply the rules to the that unique set of facts is that you have studied a lot of other cases that fall under those same statutes or those same rules. So you have an idea of how they've been applied in the past to different situations and how those unique set of facts are slightly different from what you're dealing with and it helps you make a better judgment as to how a case may come out or a potential outcome uh, because you kind of understand how these rules have been applied to a, a multitude of different different set of facts. And with this episode, I think it's interesting because we both talk about having similar struggles, you know, dealing with imposter syndrome and anxiety and a lot of these other struggles and dealing with the uniqueness of human relationships, but with different fact patterns. 
And so how is it that we can apply the rules of positive psychology to these fact patterns to help us be better? Um, we're not all perfect. And we even joke about the idea of Tom Brady being, you know, the perfect man. And we even talk about how that, that is also kind of a joke because he's not perfect. But, you know, how can we take these rules and become better and hopefully in the process better other people's lives as well and hopefully better the veterinary industry as a whole. So with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Nobody's like had any side effects. I've talked to a few people who've gotten the Moderna one and have gotten like mm-hmm. knocked, knocked out, like either really tired yeah. or you know, like my buddy who's a firefighter, he got it and he had to like, and then he had to go work the next day. And so they were at the firehouse and he felt okay, like initially. And then all of a sudden just felt like death warmed over. And then, and then like, they weren't busy. They didn't have any calls. So he was able to like take a nap and then they got a call, call at like midnight. And when he woke up, he felt fine. So it must, you know, once he was like slept it off then he was fine. Yeah. Yeah, and I've heard too with the was that after a second one? Mm-mm. Oh, it was the first one. The first one. Yeah. 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 So so yeah, we've uh well I think I, I think I told you we had a you know kind of a scare, had a big ran through our practice. Yeah. You know, basically. Yeah. So we we just now I think we've almost got everyone everyone's returned except for one. So yeah. Oh, everybody's back in your practice except for one person. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, if you're ready to get into the meat of the subject. Yeah, sure. Sure. I'm ready when you are. Yeah. All right. So I only have one canned question. <laughs> well, technically I, that is, I have to rewind a little bit, scratch that, reverse that. I, that is a little bit of a lie. I do have two canned questions because okay. at the end, it's always, you know, anything you want to promote or talk about, then it's, that's, I guess that's the second question. Right. But, but the first question is, um, you know, how did you get your, you know, how did you get your start in vet med? What led you to vet med? Yeah. So I mean, it's a, a, I think a great question for anybody in veterinary medicine, because it's, it, it always feels like sometimes it's uh, James Harriet and, and that sort of thing. Um, I did grow up with, I mean, we grew up with horses. Um, I had ducks. I love ducks, um, cats, dogs. My mom was a receptionist at an animal hospital and was also a dog groomer. So I got to spend a lot of my time, you know, in the hospital. Uh, and then, you know, certainly being an animal lover, I think most of us, uh, that, you know, get into this, of course, love animals, um, but also a deep love of, of science, um, and just really kind of fascination with, uh, with surgery. Uh, and there was a point in my, you know, in, uh, my career or a point in my academic career where I had to make a decision, was I going to go, um, you know, into human medicine or was I going to go into, uh, uh, vet med. And, and I should say before that, what happened to me, my, my father actually passed away when I was 20. Uh, and I took, took a good amount of time off, uh, from school and I went and got my personal trainer certification and actually did that as a job um, for a while. And then I just realized that wasn't what I wanted to do with my life and then went back to school um, and really, really kind of buckled down and, and uh, got involved in, in medicine. Just for me, veterinary medicine, I felt for my personality, 
um, and just everything that it offered. That's, that's what I wanted to do. So like a lot of people, it, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Some people that I've talked with, you know, it seems like for you, like vet med was a calling since you were younger. It was like, you kind mm-hmm. of always knew that it was something you wanted to be in. And then for other people like myself, you know, yeah. I really just kind of by the grace of God fell into it. So for you, it sounds like it was something that you were kind of very into from the beginning, like at a young age, like it was kind of something that you were kind of dedicated to, but then you made this statement that you had to make this decision if you wanted to go into human med or vet med. Mm-hmm. So maybe elaborate on that thought process. A little yeah. Bit. Is, and it really, for me, it had to do with, <laughs> Uh, knowing a little bit about my strengths um, and, you know, and also just, you know, I think we'll get into this, but some of uh, some of the things that I had that were challenges in my life, um, you know, as far as uh, anxiety and, uh, um, you know, I had, uh, we'll get into it, but I I had alcohol use disorder, um, you know, and I just didn't, human medicine, like just didn't, didn't feel like the place that, that fit my strengths or fit my personality. And I, I, you know, I don't know that it was right or wrong, but I had a, I had a perception um, of what human medicine was. And I just felt like I would fit, you know, better um, my personality and my, my strengths and extroversion and that sort of thing. in in vet med. Interesting. So you say like extroversion, yeah. cause I imagine like, so a good friend of mine works for a, another company in the industry. And we were, we were, mm-hmm. we were talking about, you know, like he was talking about a, a good friend of his that is also a, a practice owner and they were at VMX mm-hmm. or, and they were like trying to pick the doctors out of the, the C, right? Like, Oh, right. Yep. Doctor, doctor, doctor. Yeah. And so we were kind of coming up with this list to really describe what a, a DVM is in one of the, one of the terms that we put on there was generally a little bit more introverted. And it was what we kind of true, which is yeah. true on the whole. Yeah. Yep. But you, but for you, you said you're more extroverted and you thought that might fit better in vet med. Right. And it was, and it, and it, you know, I think, I think from a previous conversation, we'll really get into this, but when we talk about, you know, when we talk about well-being and we talk about our meaning and purpose, you know, why are we here? Um, that what, what, captivated me about veterinary medicine was being able to build a relationship, you know, with clients, um, you know, and, and seeing it in totality, you know, not, not just being able to help that, that dog or cat in front of me, but also, um, you know, to help the, help the owner through it, you know, and knowing how I think all of us, of course, can empathize with that being on the other side of the table, if you will, um, you know, and just being able to be a communicator uh, and, and, adding that to the equation and seeing how, how effective communication and empathy really um, makes, makes for better care, uh, you know, on the whole, you know, it allows us to put ourselves in the client's shoes and, you know, and to be able to come up with the best solution for that patient. So before we dig into that, there's, you said mm-hmm. one other thing that I'm really interested yeah. in because uh, it resonates with me early in my career because I made a similar path, mm-hmm. slightly different, but I, I had a similar path in that you said you were a personal trainer. So the background yeah. of that, the reason that I find that interesting is mm-hmm. my first job out of college, I worked for my like first real job, you know, like I, I, had, I had to work to put myself through college in the first place, mm-hmm. but I was uh, 
a service porter at Planet Honda dealership in the mm-hmm. service department, you know, driving people yeah. around, washing cars, right. you know, whatever. Yeah. So my first like real degree job um, post-college was at with a sports supplement company called Isatory. And uh, mm-hmm. so one of my roles that I got into later in before I, I went into becoming, went to another company and become a developer is I was a, the promotions manager. And so I had to find athletes that we were going to sponsor. And so yeah. I was going to like all the bodybuilding <laughs> trade shows right, right. every year. And ironically, I'm still very fascinated with that whole industry. And a lot of my good friends are, you know, it's funny, my friend Candice, uh, she was just featured on like the cover of oxygen magazine and all oh, that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so like, and every year when the Olympia comes around, I'm like, Oh, who's going to win? Mm-hmm. And my mm-hmm. wife and I still very much follow, but I'm very removed from the industry as far as a working perspective, but I'm interested, you know, what led you to, you know, become a personal trainer and kind of get involved in this like physical fitness and, um, industry as a whole, I guess. Right. I mean, it's a great question. And so it speaks a little bit, I think what we were talking about with, you know, with strengths in the beginning and, you know, like a lot of us, I played, you know, I played a lot of sports in, in high school. Um, it didn't look like I ended up going to the university of Florida, my first year in undergrad, uh, in 1992, um, (laughs) you know, wasn't, wasn't going to be on the football team, you know, at, at the university of Florida, but, but what I did enjoy was, you know, what comes along with that, with the training is, you know, just being in the weight room. And some of that has to do with the, you know, dare I say, like just the meathead mentality type thing that I was, uh, you know, I was brought up with, you know, just in, in those sports. And luckily I think a lot of that, you know, has changed, but the, you know, the, the, the benefit that we get, or, you know, that, that feeling of a good workout, very much like many things in well-being there you know there was a payoff to that and and i just i enjoyed it and i got i ended up getting into uh amateur powerlifting as well and uh you know i had won a couple uh uh won the 1996 uh nasa florida state uh championship um you know way back in the day but that that was what it was like hey i really like this and you know i I kind of had that, you know, tried to listen to that. Well, you just do, do something that you love, um, for a career, you know, walk down that path. And I just didn't, I didn't have the tools that I needed at that point in my level of maturity, if you will, to, uh, to really do well as a, you know, as a personal trainer, like, you know, really putting the effort into it. But I realized too, that just wasn't, wasn't the direction that wasn't going to give me, uh, what I wanted out of life. So I went back to school. So you said something there that I found interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to elaborate on. You said, sure. At the time you kind of had this meathead mentality, but then you <laughs> said with a twist that you're kind of, but you were glad that that side of you had left or had changed. Right. Right. So elaborate yeah. on that. Yeah. More so some of the things that go along with that, you know, with the, you know, I think most of us can, you know, know the, you know, the gym rat or the, and I wouldn't even say that because that, that term doesn't, isn't actually the, you know, when I hear it, I don't think poorly of it, but just, you know, a little bit of the toxic masculinity and just, you know, or, or, you know, and just eating and working out and, you know, some of the things that go along with that, that, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to keep, 
keep some of the good things, you know, from, from that part of my life, which was, you know, love for training and, you know, just feeling the, uh, just the benefit, you know, the, the health benefit and the, the feeling that we got. And then also shedding some of that body image, um, you know, which is still, still tough, even, you know, even at this age, uh, for me, but, um, just looking at it from a different light, you know, and, and my, my reasons for training, even though the, the training is similar, the reasons uh, my motives for doing it are different today than they, you know, than they are or were, I should say. Yeah. You touched on there, like this idea of struggling with body image. And I can really resonate Mm -hmm. with that because I had, so, you know, work, like I, you know, I talked about, I was working my way through college. I I put on a lot of weight and I got really Mm -hmm. heavy. And then, you know, I got involved in this fitness industry where, you know, it is, it's very, very vain, right? right? Like it's all about having the perfect physique and all all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I will still say to this day that I think that professional bodybuilding, it is the hardest sport in the world because it's 24 seven, you know what I mean? It's 24 seven, 365. Like some Mm -hmm. of the athletes we were working with, I mean, they're getting up at two o'clock in the morning to eat. You know what I mean? Like, right. it's not like you go to the gym, you know, you go, like, if you're a football player, you go to the gym, you train. Yeah. You still have to eat right and stuff, but you can go home and relax. Like this, it's like right. every calorie. Yeah. It's just insane. Um, right. And then there's also, this is a total rabbit hole. I'm going down here, but I remember the owner of the company used to always say like, yeah, they're, they're the most, the most unhealthy, healthy looking people on the planet. Yes. Right. Yes. And yeah. that was a big, that was a big mind shift for me because then yeah. you start to see the other side of it. But still, I mean, like I said, I'm still very much fascinated with that industry. But where I was going with this whole body image thing is then I, uh, you know, I ended up losing like 55 pounds or something mm-hmm. and getting in decent, mm-hmm. getting in decent shape. And yeah, I was like you, I got really into to training and being in the gym. And then I really found a love for endurance sports. And so even now, I still struggle, you know, especially as somebody who, uh, you know, was training for the Boulder Ironman last year. Mm -hmm. I still struggle with this thing, you know, like I step on the scale every day and I'm still like, I really should be around a buck 55, you know, and I, I'm, I sit around 170, 175 is pretty standard with being able to do the things I like, but in my mind, I'm like, I always need to be in that race weight. You know, I need to be thinner. Mm -hmm. I need to be in that race weight. I need to be faster. And it is, I mean, for people out there that don't struggle with this, like kind of fat complex, it's a, it's a real mm-hmm. beast. Um, yeah. yeah. What is your experience with that? Cause you touched on that a little bit and that really resonated with me because I understand what that's like. I mean, how are you managing that today? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, for me, it, it absolutely, I think for a lot of us, I mean, it absolutely started when I was young, you know, very young. Um, you know, and I, it, it's funny cause when I look at, pictures of me as a kid. Um, I, I don't like, I don't see myself that overweight, but I was made fun of. And, uh, you know, and that just it, a lot of the really, I mean, a lot of our behaviors, I mean, you know, we may even get into this with, you know, some of the applied positive psychology and trauma and the ACEs and that type of thing. But the, those, just those things were, were motivating factors, you know, is that I just didn't, I didn't want to feel you know, feel that way anymore. That being said is I have to be cognizant of where, you know, where my motives for changing my body are. Um, and COVID's a big, you know, the, 
uh, I'll say probably for the past pre-COVID for about four years before COVID, we had changed our schedule at the practice. Um, we really had it had it down um, where we, you know, our staff was able to get, you know, their lunch breaks, our, our scheduling, um, productivity, efficacy, just level of well-being in the practice. Everything was just firing on all eight cylinders. And I personally, I was able to, I had my meal plan, which was great. Um, and then I was able to go to the gym just about, we have a gym right up the street from the clinic. I was able to go to the gym, you know, probably three or four times a week, um, you know, for a good, you know, like a good hour and a half. I mean, I was really lucky, you know, in that regard. And I know, no, I was, that all has turned itself on its head, of course. And I mean, not to minimize, you know, what everyone else is going through, but for me that, that took what, what unfortunately is the first thing that goes is that break that I have in the middle of the day to work out, even though frustratingly, I will say this is somebody, you know, act and uh, was a well-being advocate um, and how important it is. That's been something that's come off the, off the plate for me. And so it's been challenging for me, uh, you know, keeping, keeping my meal plan on schedule and then also, uh, you know, a training, a good training regimen. And so my weight has, you know, has definitely gone. I mean, I'm the heaviest now that, you know, I have been in five years. What I look at it though, is saying, don't judge myself with that, but Hey, this is, these are, this is merely a data point. I mean, I'm not as simplistically as that, but trying to, you know, just reminding myself, this is just now we need to, you know, so where, where can we make some changes? Um, you know, cause this can't, can't be the direction that I continue on. Cause I just know in my, you know, my past for me, it's just, it's an unhealthy place, both physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So one thing you also touched on there mm -hmm. is you kind of had this, you know, you were talking about this struggle of no longer being able to go to the gym and be able to do certain aspects that really kind of make you feel right. Right. Like they mm -hmm. make you feel better. Um, yeah. But what I noticed was, is that you also, at the same time, you know, you're like, you didn't want to, it was almost like you were minimizing the true effect, you know, like comparing that to other people's struggles. And so I would mm. love to hear from you, from your opinion, as somebody who is really focused on like building well-being in your practice mm -hmm. and, and helping spread that message throughout the veterinary industry, how do we... And I ask this not in a criticizing way. I ask it in a way that I, mm. again, that I truly resonate with because a lot of times I look at my problems and the, and the things mm. that I'm facing and I'm like, a lot of times I tell myself, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, kid. Like yeah. you've got it easy. You know what I mean? First world problems compared to a lot of other people. Right. But in the same aspect, these are problems that I'm facing and that I need to overcome. So how do we not judge ourselves in a way that we're saying like, Oh, your problems aren't real problems. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like kind right. of self-deprecating our own problems in a Perfect. way to, to comp, to complicate them, and to yeah. whatever, <laughs> you know what I'm getting right. at here. Yeah. So, so Clint, what I would tell you, and thank you for asking that question. Cause I think this moves into a very, very important part. When we talk about, and, and I have a, a great friend of mine, her name is Katie Berlin. Um, and she does, 
uh, she does marathons and she has a podcast called the vet reset and just very, you know, big proponent of, um, physical activity and getting moving, you know, as part of the, the wellbeing continuum in, in vet med. And so where I think when, when we've done something physical, um, you know, in our, our life that, you know, that self-flagellation or just, you know, gritting your teeth and just get through it, get through this set, get through this, you know, last you know, 400 meters or what, you know, whatever it is, we try two things I'd say is one, we try to, or I, I, I tried, but I think, you know, a lot of us do is we try to use that mentality, um, you know, or that, that motivation and carry it over to emotional spirit, you know, things where it just does not, not work but it's the tool that we have, you know, that a lot of us have and we use it and we, we beat ourselves over the head with it. So to answer your question is reframing in a, uh, in two things is one is a concept that's called self-compassion, um, which Dr. Kristen Neff is uh, uh, kind of the, the founder of that movement. And it's, it's different from self-esteem. It's different from other things where what we do is saying, you know, say what we just said it's like yes you are you are going through this you know and it is it is challenging you know and yes other people are going through it too but you're not the point of me saying that is not minimizing is not trying to minimize if i if i'm sitting and going through this process is i'm not i'm not minimizing what i'm going through i'm honoring what those people are going through and what i am going through is challenging and that's okay and now we honor that it is challenging you know, instead of going, oh, you, you know, you POS, like just, just get up, you know, get up off the ground, get up, you know, do this almost the old, you know, like watching, you know, being in high school and watching like, you know, Navy SEAL movies and, you know, that, you know, I think, I think that gets into some of the toxic masculinity type stuff and not, not, and I'm, and I'm not minimizing what they do either. It's just for me trying to use that, that mindset doesn't, doesn't work well for well-being, you know, in, in this sphere is that we have, we've got to have another set of tools. So uh, the practice of self-compassion is very, very important, which is just empathy towards ourselves. Best way to describe it, treat it, that you would treat yourself the way that you would, if your friend came to you with the same problems, you would, you would talk, you would have the same inner dialogue with yourself as you would your friend, you know, and it's, it's a, it's, something that if we listen to that inner dialogue, most of the time we don't talk to ourselves that way. So self-compassion has been uh, really, you know, uh, one of the change, one of the game changers for me. And, and I had to, I had to have compassion for myself to honor self-compassion. Cause I was like, Oh, that's just, you know, you, you want to frame it like, Oh, it's, it's woo woo or it's this. And it's not, it's not at all. It's, you know, it's being, it's honoring what we're going through and then helping find a way through it. And then second is, is just gratitude. Cause sometimes I do, uh, you know, I do want to get in a little bit of a, a pity party with certain things. And it's like, I can reframe it and say, well, I do, you know, I have, you know, if I, if I look at the balance sheet, things are going, you know, very well. I'm very grateful for what I have. And yes, that thing that I'm going through is challenging, but I also have all these other things, you know, going on in my life. A lot of stuff for that question. Sorry about no, that. No, no. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a complicated question, right? Because yeah, 
I think everybody deals with, I think everybody deals with it on, on some level. And, you know, for me, if I reflect on it for me personally, it has always been this thing that, you know, as I grew up, it was like, I mean, I was constantly told as a kid, like I was a mistake, right? Like my parents never mm-hmm. wanted, never wanted to have me. And, and yeah. it was like, and, and growing up, it was constantly like, and again, this isn't to try to have a, again, here I go with that self-minimization <laughs> of my own struggles. Mm-hmm. Right. But, right. um, that, yeah, it's weird how you can catch yourself as you start to think about mm-hmm. these things. Cause yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a real struggle for me growing up and I guess to try to be compassionate with myself, it was rough constantly hearing that like, I was the blame for all my parents' mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. It was constantly this like, oh, well, the things we could do if we didn't have kids, if we didn't have you kids, that was always yeah. the, the thing and yeah. always the complaint. And it was like, and it was just driven and driven and driven and driven and driven into my head over and mm-hmm. over again. And ironically, you know, as I, I haven't talked to my parents in, I don't even know, probably close to 10 years nowadays. Mm. And I think my dad's in prison, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, when I confronted them on that later in life, it was always like, oh, well, you know, we weren't serious, you know, because it was different now, right? Like I wasn't right. their responsibility. And yeah, so it's just, I guess where I'm going with this really long-winded story about my own personal mm-hmm. struggles is that I've always had this mental idea that the world doesn't owe me anything, right? Because I was always mm-hmm. like, I think it's because it's always this thing that's driven in my head. And I was like, I got to figure it out for myself and I got to figure out how to survive. And I got to figure out like the world doesn't owe me anything, figure it out. And sometimes that really hasn't been very helpful. And in other areas it has been really helpful. So how do you navigate those spaces where you're trying to figure out how you can take the positive from like, say a struggle, like, like in my case, you know, this idea of constantly being told you were a mistake to what are the, you know, to separating out what are the deprecating aspects mm-hmm. of it that are preventing us from being better. Yeah. So let me, let me start and say, you know, the, the experience that I have is, is my own moving forward. And I would also say that it also opens the door to something that I think in veterinary medicine, we're talking a lot more about, which is, uh, you know, getting mental mental health treatment, you know, talking, talking to, uh, you know, a licensed therapist and those, those types of things that is 100% what, uh, you know, what they, that is in their wheelhouse. That is what, what they do and helping us, us navigate that. I did not go down that road, but it had nothing to do with, um, uh, it didn't have, it, it wasn't a choice or anything like that. So, what I would say, because like, to answer your question, I've got to give you how I got to the tools uh, that I have, is you know in 08, I was uh, I was suicidal. Um, I had uh, uh, alcohol and substance use disorder, um, you know, which was my only tool from the time that I was 15, uh, you know, until the time I was 32, uh, to deal with all all of that stuff, you know, my. My dad uh, had an alcohol use disorder growing up, and uh, you know, was a little chaotic and and challenging in our in our house. Um, he did the best that he could with the tools that he had. I'll you know I'll say that as well. But I ended up uh, going into treatment um, in 2008. Uh, got a lot of tools there, and then I got into 12 step recovery. Um, and so going through that process, there's a 
process where you take an inventory of basically your entire life and look at how you viewed things and resentments that you had. And also looking at what, what part that I played in those, because a lot of the things where I felt like I was a victim of, of the world or the world didn't treat me well, it, I was blind to how I added fuel to that fire. This is not talking about things that happened to me as a child that I had, I, I absolutely had no part in that I was there and I, I hadn't, I, I didn't have any way to, you know, address it. Um, you know, just things as I was an adult. And so what that does or what that process did for me, and it's kind of like almost it's, it's similar to CBT, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And, uh, uh, you know, we call it cognitive behavioral coaching with, with that, but just looking at things, looking at the beliefs that I have about a situation or looking at how I've acted, um, you know, and how somebody else might've acted in that situation. And I have to have a underlying belief for me to have, feel the way that I did or act the way that I did. Um, and what would be different, you know, if I, if I gave someone the benefit of the doubt or, you know, if I, if I looked at things from another angle and so it forced me to, to look, look at the world through a a different set of glasses. Um, and so that process has taken, you know, taken a while, but that, that's one of the tools that I use, you know, when things happen to me is, is, something happens and, and I, I feel a certain way and it's just like, okay, this event is the event. You know, it's curious. I'm wondering why, you know, why am I getting so angry? You know, and if I'm angry, I know I'm, you know, there's, there's a fear that I'm, I'm threatened or, you know, something It's like curious, like, why is that? And I start going through that, that process. Um, and so that, that's, you know, the, one of the tools that I was shown to, you know, to, to look at things from a different, different angle. And it's been, I mean, it's just given me a level of peace and serenity that I just never had, you know, before. Um, Cause it was always either everything, everything good was because of me. Um, everything bad is uh, I was a victim, someone. So, you know, someone caused that to happen to me. Yeah. So we had, but unfortunately people aren't, aren't privy to our previous conversation, right. but um <clears throat> When we had talked earlier, you had talked a little mm-hmm. bit about this idea of learning how to, like you went through this process where you had to go up to people where you had wronged in some yeah. way mm-hmm. as an adult and being yeah. able to go to them and kind of put lay it out on the table and say, hey, I'm yeah. really sorry for the way, you know, because you talked about, you know, this, you said just a minute ago, you know, what part did I play in this, right? What, yes. what was my perspective in this? How did I right. contribute to this? And as you were telling that story, you know, as you were telling your experience, it made me think about the situations in my life and specifically that, you know, there's been situations where I knew that I played a role in it. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you try to, you're like, look, I understand I made a mistake. I'm willing to do whatever I can to make it right. But the person on the other side of that conversation Mm -hmm. doesn't care or doesn't hear what you want to have to say. Yeah. Yeah. And you, before you had kind of talked about like how it was like, really, it really let everything go. But, you know, like personally, I've been there where I was like, look, I understand I made this mistake. I understand my role in it. Um, But yet the other person on the other side wasn't willing to accept their role in the situation. And so it's like, you're trying to make it right, but then you can't. And it's just like this scar that you kind of have to then deal with. Yeah. 
And that's, and this, this too, again, and I want to just say like this, this is my experience in, in that area or that, that sphere of, uh, you know, recovery and, and a method of working and not that this is what, what everyone should do, you know, um, versus, you know, counseling and that sort of thing. That being said, um, is that I, you know, I have little control too over how someone else is going to act. What, what is interesting is that when I've gone, gone to people, you know, my, in my past, when I went through this process is that probably 90 to 95% of people were open, you know, to, you know, to, to me trying to, to clear this and, you know, and honored what I was trying to do. And, and I was going into it with the mindset and this is, this gets into motive too, is just, you know, my motive, I really had to focus and meditate and, you know, and say, pray on what that I, I just wanted to do my best if it felt like that was the right thing to do to, to go to that person and try to clear things up. And then if someone chose not to accept that, um, because it wasn't, that wasn't my goal. It was just to try to say, Hey, I just want you to know, like I did these things and that's okay too, is that knowing that, I mean, for instance, one of them's happened to be my mother, you know, when I, when I went to her and I thought, well, this is, you know, this is my mom. Like, you know, of course I'm just going to go through all these things. And there was something that she held a deep resentment towards me against. And I remember her saying, I'm, you know, she, she was given the opportunity to say, I'm, I'm going to work on that. I'm not there yet. And it hit me like, cause I was like, I was, I was in a place where I was just like, I know I've done these things in every, every fiber of my being, I want to correct this. Um, and even that being said, it, you know, for, for what she had gone through, it wasn't enough at that point. Now that, you know, was 12 years ago. And so since we've, you know, we've, we've mended that, but it is, it's, it's doing, doing the work of responsibility and trying as best we can to separate the, the expectation of the result. Um, and I think that's what it is. If I go into a, go in and we call it an amends process. If I go into that amends, expecting that if I say these things, X will happen. Um, that's, that's where I'm going to be disappointed. And I have to go in there with the expectation that I have done everything that I can in my power to make this as, as right as I can. And that the result, you know, that person's response is not, not in my wheelhouse, you know? And so they're, I've given them, you know, the tools to do with it, what they will, but it is, that is something I'll say in the, you know, in the rooms of 12 step recovery is very challenging when we, you know, cause it, it hurts, you know, and uh, you know, cause we want, we want to be able to clear the air and uh, you know, and to mend that relationship or, you know, and sometimes it doesn't always happen that way. So in your practice, are you the mm-hmm. one, like, do you deal with the, like any HR issues that come up with staff or do you have somebody else on your team that handles all that? We actually have an incredibly high level of emotional intelligence um, in our staff. And so we're, we're actually to the point where a lot of common things get handled before either myself or my practice manager even hear about it. Um, you know, which is what we want, you know, is that, Hey, these, these are the things that we, you know, we expect from one another. Um, and that 
there's psychological safety there. There's the belief, you know, there's trust. And then there's the belief that if I do something wrong, someone is going to is still going to consider that I had the best intentions of doing it. You know, that there was, there was that we, we give each other the benefit of the doubt, but that we correct each other and that there's, there's, um, you know, uh, 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 constructive criticism. And so that has taken a while for us to build that, but that that's what we have now. So we've had a couple, you know, maybe over the past three or four years had a couple, you know, more significant ones where we had to sit down and those still, still are tough, but we know that if we just sit on them and don't do anything um, and just sweep it under the rug, you know, almost like putting the, putting the jug of milk, you know, sour milk back in the fridge and say, well, maybe tomorrow it'll be fresh. You know, it's, it, it doesn't do us any good to, you know, to avoid those, you know, the crucial conversations this book out called that. Yeah. So I guess where I, you know, where I was going with that is, yeah. um, you, you know, like now that you look at how you've had to learn, you know, you've really had to examine your own mistakes, right. As mm-hmm. a person. And, yeah. and I think it really brings to light a lot of the, the, you know, the humanity in all of us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess what my question is, is as a leader now in a practice and in an owner Mm -hmm. in a practice, how has like, when these issues come up with employees, I mean, it's amazing. You know, you have this, like, like this really unique structure that I don't think a lot of practice practices have, but how do you, like, how has this learning experience for you impacted the way you handle tough human problems in your own practice? Yeah. So I, I th- a, a lot of it or some of it still, like I still have the instinctual response that I want to have. And I, I know that that's not usually not right. Um, you know, is that if I'm, I know that if I'm stressed or, you know, for me, it's that, that threatened, like if I want to just take a flamethrower to something that is the inappropriate response, you know, is that that is not now, now in my life, that is not an appropriate or normal response to something. And I try my best not to respond in, in those situations. So, but what it is, is trying to look at, you know, look at all angles of it, assume, assume good intent, um, you know, is another thing. And with the challenges is also saying, you know, are we doing, you know, if we're talking about like a relationship between employees is that are, are we doing the best thing for everyone involved, keeping this person here? And that, you know, if, if we separate, um, that doesn't mean that we think less of that person that, you know, anything, you know, it's just to, to try to continue to move forward just isn't, you know, isn't gonna, you know, isn't gonna work. And to do that in a, you know, a gentle, uh, you know, and, and supportive way. I mean, it's never, never easy. I don't know if that's exactly what, what you were getting at, but what I would say is that in that process, I always have to look at what emotions I have, the feelings that I have towards it. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm able to put myself in that other person's position and see where they're coming from. And then also just seeing if something gets brought up in me, like if I get angry about a situation or I feel judgmental, is where, you know, where is that coming from? You know, because if I, if I'm trying to lead or if I'm trying to do something from up here down, um, it just doesn't, you know, authoritarian or authoritative. It, it's, 
it just doesn't doesn't work for me. Um, that's it. Yeah. So what did what did it take you to like? Because you, you talked about this like instinctual response was your was mm-hmm. the word you, you phrased yeah. used there and. You know, when I think to a, a personal experience that I went through with somebody that I re- that I thought I really trusted and had a great relationship yeah. with, you know, a, a problem arose and that person to, to decided to call all of my closest friends and colleagues, right? Yeah. And they tried to, they had this story in their mind about whatever I was trying to do, which wasn't the case. The case. And yeah. and they and they called all my friends and all my closest fr- colleagues and. <laughs> they reiterated like, no, I don't think that's the case. Right. But then mm-hmm. that per, and I found out all of this later, right? I found out about all this right. afterwards. Right. And then that, that this person that this, you know, had this issue with me never decided to talk to me until they had decided that, okay, I went, I talked to everybody else. They couldn't confirm my own story, but I'm going to, con- I'm going to confirm it for myself. And then basically it was a five minute conversation as to why, basically our relationship, whatever we had there was over. Right. And they didn't care to hear my story. They didn't care to hear anything about it. And I think what was interesting is hearing you talk about this idea of how, you know, trying to put yourself in that person's shoes, assuming good intent, and then kind of coming to them and, you know, trying to have a conversation and then still, and then determining if it's, if it's going to work or not. And I think mm-hmm. what really still bugs me about this, this situation is I'm like, you called all of my closest friends and colleagues, right? They told you exactly what I would have told you. Right. But yeah, right. you told yourself that, you know, you, and then to look me in the eyes and say that you trusted me and that you really, you know, you really believed in me and all of these things. Right. In my mind, right. I'm like, was bullshit, right? For lack of a better term. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. if that was the case, we would have had a conversation together, but we never even had a conversation. Right. Right. And this person, this person was in like a leadership role, you know? And so yeah. that's where I, again, I guess to try to understand their position. And I mean, it, again, this is all through my lens and it, it, it's my perspective, but it's still something I really struggled with. Cause I'm like, you are saying one thing, but doing another. And it has always right. just really bugged me. So as a leader, like, how did you, yeah, how did you, what was the catalyst that got you to realize like, Hey, maybe I'm overreacting and to try to understand the other person's perspective before you actually had a real, have a real conversation with them. Yeah. So for me, it was going through that uh, and you know, thank you for sharing your experience with that. Cause that's a, that is an incredibly challenging situation where it's, it's, a rational person, you know, you, you telling me this, or you telling someone else, this is we can look at that and say, okay, five people said the same thing. I still don't believe it. You know, if, if I do that now, um, if I ask trusted friends, you know, if I give them as, as unbiased as I can make it, which probably wasn't the case in this person's case was before, you know, they had some self-awareness, but as unbiased as I can be, if I tell five of my, my close friends, this situation, and they all tell me the same thing, I, I can't, if I still choose not to believe it, I know this, this lies within me, you know, is that people that don't have any skin in the game who only are going to give me, you know, the, you know, they, they don't have any reason to not tell me what they believe. 
um, you know, I, I have to look at why would I not, why, why would I not believe that? And that gets into, to answer your question where, you know, at what point did that change? Well, it was when I looked, you know, went through this process in my life where I looked at almost every major, I mean, every major relationship and a lot of minor relationships that I had and saw a pattern. You know, I saw a pattern of underlying fear, you know, what, what people were going to think of me, um, that I wasn't good enough, you know, and part of that, part of that inventory is going through, uh, you know, listing all, all of our fears, you know, and I had a, you know, for me, I had a fear of failure and I had a fear of success. And it's like, there's no, there's no possibility for peace, you know, with those two things going on. So having that self-awareness and, and uh, you know, again, it's, I, I did it for the vast majority of my life. So that's why I was saying it's instinctual is it's still in there for me to initially in my mind want to respond a certain way. Um, but I have to then look at, okay, where is all this coming from? And then processing that information and then, then moving forward. But it's, it's because I, I, I know what, what my pattern is. <laughs> if you will. Man, when you said, you know, fear of failure and fear of success, man, that really got home with me. You know, as I think about now and running my own company and Mm -hmm. there is, there's this, it's weird. Like people like fear, you know, fear of success. Like how could you be fearful of success? But it is hard to describe. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, elaborate on that. What was that? What's that like for you? Yeah. So fear, fear of success meant, that I was going to be put in, you know, maybe I succeed and I get put in a position where I don't have, you know, and then it gets into imposter syndrome and, you know, some of these other things is like, am I, am I going to, you know, I I mean, I'm from Florida, so I'm using this term, you know, am I going to get over my skis? You know, am I, you know, cause it was just basically a lot of my life. I was just, I was just waiting for somebody to come in and go, yeah, everything you said is a bunch of BS. Like, we, you know, we know where you're coming from. We're just going to call you on it now. And we just, we just like you to leave the profession, you know, or what, like I had those kind of, you know, crazy thoughts, but, but that's where the, I mean, the fear of failure, of course, for many reasons, but it was, it was not looking at failure as an opportunity for growth, you know, just looking at and go, okay, well, you know, if I, if I don't have, if I have adequate self-worth and that I'm not, you know, I'm not judging who I am as a person based on the result of whatever this is and being able to look at something and go, Hey, this, if this didn't go the way I expected it, there's a great opportunity for me to get better for us to get better as a team. So separating failure, uh, you know, looking at failure in a different, different way that, that helped with, with the uh, fear of failure, but the, the success really for me, it was more, um, you know, more eyes on me, one, two, that I wasn't going to be able to, I was going to be, be put in a position that I didn't have the, that I didn't think that I had the, the tools to, to succeed in. And then I was, and then I was going to fail. <laughs> yeah. I was talking with yeah. uh, Dr. Christina Tran or Tina Tran and uh-huh. she's at the university of Arizona. And we actually, um, I think her episode just came up this, this last week and mm-hmm she talked about the same thing, like sitting in this, when she first got to vet school, sitting in that, in that room and thinking the same thing. And she's the exact same words, imposter syndrome and being like, I'm yeah. going to be found out. Like, why am I here? Yeah. I don't deserve to be here. Um, yeah. It is a, uh, it is an interesting thing. I mean, 
that has definitely been a, and also a learning curve for me too, is to realize mm-hmm. like, I always, I used to always live with this idea that if I know it, then everybody else must know it. You know, like mm-hmm. I never really gave myself credit for the research yeah. or the things that I would yeah. learn. And so as I was like, well, if I know it, everybody else has to know it. And so again, I'm just an imposter, right? Yeah. And learning to understand and recognize your own strengths is also a challenge, you know, because yes. in a lot of respects, I want to be humble. I don't want to be that arrogant jerk, you know, mm-hmm. um, like, uh, there's a great, uh, again, cause this is my podcast. We can, we can talk about religion too, but there's this, uh, there's this great, uh, Buddhist Zen master who brought mm-hmm. uh, Buddhist thought from China to Japan and his name is Do- um, Dogen. And he wrote this great, like kind of, it's almost like a treatise. Like it's this really mm-hmm. great cr- collection of books. Uh, and it's called the, it's uh, Dogen Shobogenzo. And it kind of loosely translate this guy, Brad Warner, who is, who is a kind of an American expat who lives in Japan. Who's also a Zen mm-hmm. master wrote a really great book and it's, kind of translate all of translates all of Dogen's work. And he simply translates the title as how to not be a jerk. Right. Yeah. And where I'm going with that is that in a lot of respects too, it's like this, I, this struggle of not being an arrogant jerk. Right. Yeah. And, and like boasting in your success or your own Mm -hmm. knowledge or trying to be the know-it-all and trying to stay humble but then not being too humble and that it's self-deprecating, you know, it's yes. like this fine line. A hundred percent. And that, so in, in recovery or in the, you know, in the rooms of recovery, one of the definitions that I heard early on, you know, this is when I, when I first, first got sober and first got into recovery was that humility is an honest assessment of our strengths and weaknesses, nothing more, you know? And so what you just said is just, we all know our weaknesses. I mean, we could all list all the things that we should be better at, but honoring the things that we are genuinely good at and the things that, and also in the well-being sphere is that if we, if we don't take time to, the, the term is savor, um, to savor our, our wins or savor our accomplishments, there's no balance. Um, now that is different than being boastful and running in and go, I, you know, coming in and if something goes well, it was all me, 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 you know, type of thing versus looking at a win. And, and for instance, I'll say in the, in the veterinary hospital, you know, we, we had a case a few weeks ago where we saved a, you know, a five month old puppy that had a bleeding, you know, a bleed in the abdomen. I sat with that and just share, I mean, in looking around and all the things that every person on that team played a role that was life-saving for that puppy and that things had to happen. All the, you know, the work that we were talking about that, you know, with the high level of emotional intelligence and psychological safety, if we hadn't have done all that work, there were moments in that breakdown that it, it wouldn't have happened. You know, if you break down like, it, looking at a success the same way, you know, you would, you would look at an, you know, an airline crash, you know, as all the things that led up to that success and knowing that there, you know, there's no self-made person or anything like that, that the, all those things came together in a wonderful way and sitting with that and like letting the sun hit your face and saying, yeah, I'm going to take five minutes. Or I'm going to take 10 minutes and just honor this and let this feel good. And then we can move on you know, to, uh, to the rest of our, our days, but that's a, that's a big 
big part of veterinary medicine that I don't think the message gets out enough because we have that, like you said, is we don't want to be boastful or we don't want to, you know, we, we want to be humble, but we don't have a necessarily really have a good definition or honoring of what that is. And so I, I do like that an honest assessment of one's strengths and weaknesses, no better, no less an honest inventory of what we bring to the table. Yeah. An honest inventory of what we bring to the table. That's a great way to look at it. Um, You know, I was, uh, I just got accepted to be um, on the board of the Rocky Mountain Medical Reserve Corps and they have like a veterinary division. And one of my good friends, uh, she's on the board and it, you know, she was like, she was interviewing me And what is interesting as you say that is like an honest assessment, you know, of, um, of where you come from. And what was interesting is they, you know, they, they had asked me this question that was like, you know, as a board member, what do you think your role is? And, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of gave my answer and then I kind of turned it back and I was like, well, what would you guys expect from me? And what was interesting is my good friend who's a vet. She, she looked at me and she's like, she's like, we need you to say like, when you know that you're good in an area, right? Like, she's like, look, if we as a board decide like, Hey, we are struggling in the area of data privacy and security, or how are we handling this in in regards to HIPAA compliance? Like, she's like you, as much as you may not want to admit it, like you are the expert in the board and we want Mm -hmm. you to speak up on it. That was kind of a bit of a shot in the face because I was like, you know, generally I would say like, okay, well, what do you guys want? And I can help. Right. But I would never like, intentionally take charge, be like, well, I'm mm-hmm. an expert in this area. Like, let, yes, let me lead this, right? Like I know how to guide right. us here. Right. It's still this, this idea of like wanting to be like, okay, well, yeah, I know a decent amount about it, but uh, you know, I'm no, ex. Right. you know, again, this kind yeah. of self-deprecating thing. And that was really kind of a, a shot to, I don't know, like a shot in the arm or kind of a punch in the mm-hmm. gut, whatever you want to call it. And I was like, yeah, ah, that is interesting, you know, to sometimes be okay with the fact that maybe, you know, something more than other people do. Right. Right. And, and honoring the work that it took to get there, you know, but also going down that road and, and it just brings up a lot of gratitude and, you know, and stuff that you, you know, where you're at and the level of expertise that you have, like you, you got there from hard work, but you also got there because of, you know, other people who, you know, took some time at some point in their, their life to move you along. And it's just, it's, it brings up a lot of interconnectedness and spirituality and, you know, and just adds a lot of, a lot more meaning if we allow it to something that on the surface doesn't, doesn't seem like necessarily, you know, it is. So I, yeah, I no, you're that ride yeah, when we do that. Yeah. Yeah. You're hundred percent right. I mean, this idea that it, you know, it takes a village to make a pencil or whatever mm-hmm. you want to have, right, whatever right. acronym you want to make, cause it really does. Right. And <clears throat> it, it's, it's an interesting conundrum because, you know, sometimes there's this idea that it's like, well, somebody had to invent the pencil, right? Like somebody had to mm-hmm. come up with that idea. And so they're kind of the leader of the pencil, but yet it yeah. really takes all of these people coming together. You know, the, the person that's hopefully now today recycling the wood, you know, wood chips from right. <laughs> or whatever, yeah. the mulch or whatever to now press mm-hmm. a pencil into a shape, hopefully not having to yeah. cut down as many trees as they used to, but mm-hmm. you know, for simplicity's sake, the person who just cut down the trees, the person who has to mine the, yeah. 
the yeah. the graphite to the person who right. holds it and it's like and the person who makes the machine who molds it so it's like there's all these people mm-hmm. that are involved within something just as simple as like making yes. a pen or a pencil and yeah. i've always thought about that and so it's like a lot of times it's hard to accept like well yeah i came up with this great idea and mm-hmm. i created the initial concept but yeah now it takes right. this village right yeah and it's not and it doesn't take away from the fact that you came up with the pencil you know right. is that it does it doesn't lessen it but it brings up you know uh, you know other things and i think that that to me is more the definition of humility is not not discounting the work you know the, what what you did but honoring you know the process of you know everyone around us too you're yeah. in the tampa area right yes yeah yeah so i mean i think it's a great example as the super bowl was just wrapping up i mean <laughs> right yes go bucks yeah. Yeah. I mean, Tom Brady, you know, the, at the end, he was the MVP. I mean, if, if we look at the example that we were just talking about, I mean, I think that Tom Brady, okay. First off, I used to hate Tom Brady. And now for the first time in my life, I found myself rooting I, for him last night. Yeah. Okay. But let me at least clarify for everybody that's listening why I hate Tom Brady. Cause he's too dang perfect, right? He's got, he's like perfect jawline, the perfect wife, the perfect kid, you know, it just seems like he's like, just everything's perfect, but we know that's not true. And, but that's right. the story we tell ourselves yeah. so we can hate him. Right. And especially as a, you know, living in Denver, Broncos have always hated new England. Right. It's like our AFC yeah. rival. Anyway, I'm going way down a sports rabbit. Hole. <laughs> but I think what was fat, what was really amazing about like, you know, as they're like, Hey, you're the MVP. It's like, well, of course he is, you know, but the talk about this idea of, like here's a team that had a lot of the right pieces, right? Mm-hmm. But they were missing that key leader in the team right. to put it all together. And yeah. so you bring in this one person who really changes the, the the leadership culture within the whole organization. And now look what they accomplished, right? Mm-hmm. And, but what I loved about that is rather than Tom Brady to be like, yeah, yeah, I was the MVP. Of course I came here and we won. I'm, you know, I'm the greatest of all time, seven Super Bowls what Mm. you know like this arrogance he was like no like i couldn't have done what i did without all of these guys down here in this team and to be able to do this with these guys and make this happen you know in our home stadium here Mm -hmm. is what makes it all count and you're like yeah damn you know yeah yeah and that for a lot of us i think is you know the the just throwing a number out there, you know, like the 22 year old me or the 22 year old athlete, like to, to me, it amazes me when I see someone in that position of that age with that much emotional, um, you know, and, and, uh, awareness of, of the world around them. Cause I would, I didn't have that. It was, again, it was just everything good was me, everything bad. It was a victim of everything. I mean, we see that in, in sports, but that exactly that, you know, what, what, uh, Tom Brady said. And it's like, if we can, if we can shift that to, you know, to our life, it, it, you know, it's true. And then exactly is that knowing there's an external validation of Tom Brady, you know, the perfect this. And it's like, Tom Brady's a human being. Tom, he's doing, he's doing amazing things. Um, but yeah, there are parts of his life that I'm sure are very challenging, you know, that we don't know about. And we, instead of focusing on that, cause we, you know, the way how polarizing sports can be is just, you know, seeing in total, you know, as him as a human being and then honoring what, you know, what he does. And I, I, I'm a, I mean, I live in Tampa, but I'm a Miami Dolphins fan. So we 
felt <laughs> the same way about uh yeah you know about the 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 patriots yeah but it's you know it's funny is like seeing that and then saying what interesting like why do i why would i have such feelings against this person you know and then looking and it's you know because a lot of people love tom brady why why wouldn't i why wouldn't i see the same things you know just kind of telling you the the thought process that you know that i'll have and it's like it's curious what is it in me because tom brady's tom brady you know he's going to do what he's going to do why why do i have a feeling one way or the other you know what does that bring up in me yeah exactly and uh you know i shared this quote the other day that was like you know it truly is it truly something about i can't remember the exact quoting but the concept was like really being able to enjoy your friend's successes right yes and like looking looking at this whole perspective it's really funny for me because i'm like oh damn you tom brady for the longest time and now that he's no longer a patriot in the afc i'm like yeah go tom brady now it's like now i now i can celebrate his accomplishments but Mm -hmm. um it is funny to like you know to look at you know look at my own experience in something so stupid as sports you know i mean at the end of the day, like, yeah, I mean, it's sports, right? It's entertainment. So it, it's funny to like be self-critical about yourself when you look at something like sports and be like, yeah, here's a person who's doing amazing things. And I hate it because they're, you know, like getting in the way of my team being good, you know, and this yeah. idea of not being able to really enjoy another piece, you know, other people right. doing amazing things. Right. Yeah. Mess so, sport. I'll say it does. It mess mess sports up a little bit for me, <laughs> you know, but uh, but it's but it's it's. I still enjoy. I mean, of course, I still still get fired up about you know those kind of things. But yeah, just seeing it in a different light. Yeah, you know, I guess this is also a good. This idea of sports is kind of a good tie mm-hmm. into something else that you've said a few times in this idea of toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to dig into that, and I. For me, yeah. there are a couple of things that get that come to mind or a couple of thoughts that come to mind when you say that. And I think it's really interesting that it seems like societally, like as a society, at least in the United States, in other Western countries, I, I can't really speak for mm-hmm. the rest of the world because I don't know, but it, there's this idea that we're really expanding on the idea of what it means to be whatever gender you are, right? Like there's right. this... Right. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I don't even know how to, I don't know how to properly describe it. And I don't want to try to, cause mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to offend anybody or I don't want to like do it injustice. Yeah. But when you talk about this idea of toxic masculinity, you know, that's one thing that I think about is like this idea of, I don't know. There's a lot, I have a lot of, there's a lot of weird thoughts and emotions yeah. that come up when you, when you say that. It, you know, just the, the culture, what I would say for me, I mean, t- you know, two things that, uh, you know, my, my experience as a, a white male in the United, you know, professional white male in the United States is that one, I, I was in recovery, you know, so I would, I had a chance to look at, you know, look inside and I'm in a profession that is majorly female. And so, you know, my wife is a, a veterinarian as well. So it, it just like, I, it's, it's, I would have to really, like, I would, I would really have to go the other way to, you know, like, I mean, for instance, just in our house, like to say, you know, to have, have specific necessarily roles as, you know, my wife does the exact same thing and is, is as, as, 
productive, you know, uh, if not more, you know, than I am. And so it's, I just, it's hard for me to look at it from, from a different way. Cause I've just grown, that's who I've grown up with, you know, in, in this profession. And so I think it's, I don't know if I, it's necessarily maybe that I, I just get a, a different outlook because of who I'm with. I mean, I, well, we don't, yeah, we have, we have a, a younger, younger guy that we just hired that works uh, as a animal care attendant. And, you know, I pretty much, I work with women all day long. And so it's just, it, I don't want to say it blinds me to it, but it opens me up to be able to see, you know, how I'm, how do I, how do I act towards them? Do I, you know, do I over, you know, uh, you know, do I mansplain? Do I over, you know, uh, talk over them if they have an idea, like I have to be like very aware and it gives me a real opportunity to grow. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what, what you're talking about, but I've talked to my wife, you know, a lot about that is that I just, I don't know. I'd be curious to know what the experience of say males in veterinary medicine under the, I mean, I'm a little older, but it's because I went to vet school a little later is just like curious as to how males say under the age of 40 um, in veterinary medicine, you know, feel like, because I, I think we, we view our colleagues as, you know, equals. I mean, we're, we're all doing the same thing and we're, you know, we're elbow deep in, you know, in surgery and we're asking each other, Hey, what would you, Hey, I, you know, I had this going on with this case. What, uh, what, you know, what would you do in this, this situation? And I just, I think it'd be interesting just to, to see, cause I, I, I try to honor as be an ally as best I can, you know, for my female colleagues. Cause I, again, I am a, I am a white male professional, you know, in the United States, like I've been afforded a lot of, a lot of opportunities that, uh, you know, wouldn't necessarily have been given to me, you know, if, if I was another gender, if I was another race and, you know, and that's that too, I to go down too much on that side, but, but that's part of the, you know, when I, when I frame things is, you know, it's, I, I need to do my best to, to honor where I'm at. And that's, you know, it gets into the not, not diminishing the work that I've done, but also knowing that there, there are people that are smarter, work harder, um, you know, that are more talented than I am and, uh, you know, don't have the opportunities that, that I do. And so I need to be able to, to stick up for them. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I was talking with, uh, again, it's similar, similar kind of conversation I had with Dr. Tran and, and, uh, you know, as Mm -hmm. an Asian female, well, I guess Mm -hmm. more technically, um, she's Filipino, you know, uh-huh. So there's something else we kind of talked about, like we lump all Asians together and in, into this one, one category. Yeah. But, um, you know, what is interesting though, cause like, I think the area that I, you know, as you, you talk about this idea, uh, you know, you've mentioned that word toxic masculinity. I feel like there are some aspects of, you know, being a male that are beneficial. And then there are, and mm-hmm. there are also, there are also aspects of being, female that are very beneficial, right? Like I feel mm-hmm. um, like one, I guess one of my own personal opinions is like, I feel for a long time, I have felt that again, I think politically, I've never been really big on, on the U S getting involved in, in foreign wars and, you know, leader, mm-hmm. you know, 
deciding who's going to lead what country and, and that sort of thing. And for the longest time, I've always said, like, I felt like it was time for America to have a, a female leader. And I think mm-hmm. a, a lot of my reasoning for that is like you, like, as you get older and your friends, you know, start to have kids and you kind of see these like instinctual, like ma- not maternal, but uh, is it yeah, ma- maternal, mm-hmm. paternal is father, maternal is mm-hmm. mother, right? Like these just internal maternal, like this, like almost this just different level of like emotional intelligence or the way that women look at the world, I think is very unique to being a biological female. Right. And again, I don't Mm -hmm. know, I have no experience when it comes to, you know, the LGBT community. So I can't, I can't speak for any of them and what it means to be, and I'm not trying to diminish any of that. I'm just speaking on, on my own experiences, what I've experienced, but and I think, you know, from a, a male standpoint, there is also this idea that males also being very testosterone driven, you know, when, if somebody's going to start invading the country, you know, it's predominantly males who are like, yeah, we're going to stand up and we're willing to get physical mm-hmm. and, 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 and protect the country. Right. Not that females don't, and not that yeah. males also don't have this kind of thing, but it just seems to be a characteristic. And I'm, again, trying to be very careful with my words because I know that this is a very sensitive topic and I don't want to offend anybody. But I think what is, I think what is interesting about this idea is that it's tough because I don't want to get to a point where we don't acknowledge those aspects of being masculine or being feminine. We can't talk about those benefits and how they might influence and be better in a certain situation because we, we can't, we can no longer label it that, you know, um, I don't know. It's a very, it's a difficult conversation. It's a very complicated one. And yeah, I don't even know. So I guess, I guess where I'm going with this is I would, I mean, when you say toxic masculinity, like what does that mean? Well, so what I would say is this, is that let, let only focusing on, let's say processing of emotions as males growing up, you don't cry. Um, you know, you tough it out, you do these things, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the stuff we were talking about earlier, um, you know, you, you just fight through it. You pick yourself up, you know, by your bootstraps, you do this. And I mean, those, those kind of things, I mean, my dad, you know, tried to instill those things in me, you know, I was probably five or six years old. I mean, I can't, I didn't have the capability of processing that at five or six, but my dad, you know, my dad was just trying to do the best that he could with me, you know, uh, with the tools that he had. So what I would say is that, you know, for, for me, you know, when I, when I say that is like, how do we, let me say this. So Brene Brown, um, very well known, uh, you know, speaker and researcher on vulnerability. You know, she, she talked about the two roles or the two, the two societal expectations, uh, you know, of males versus females. And that males are like, how do we, how do we not, uh, you know, how do we succeed in, you know, what, what, what people think of us as, as males? And she said, you don't show emotion and you just work your ass off. Like you, you be the best of what, you know, try to be the best of what you were doing. And there's no, there's no processing of emotion. So nothing, all the things that came out of me as anger was because I didn't, I didn't know how to have that self-awareness. 
it gets shown a lot in, you know, at least, you know, my estimation, you know, a lot of the physicality, you know, the physical type things, you know, that we do. Um, but, you know, what, what's funny to me is that, you know, those two things can share space at the same time. I just didn't know that until I was in my late 30s, you know, is that I do, you know, I did, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, Krav Maga practitioner, like, you know, I do all the, you know, the, you know, kind of things, but I, I, it's not my reason for doing them is, you know, is, is different. It's just, I don't know if that makes sense. It's like from the outside, it looks like, you know, I could be doing all these quote unquote typical male things and I still enjoy them, but it's, you know, it's, it, it fundamentally is how I process my view of other people and then how I look at, you know, my, my emotions and the, you know, and uh, how I process them. And that's the thing as men, you know, especially when we, I see this in, you know, in recovery is that's most of, most of the males, you know, that, you know, that's one of the things that we just didn't have any tools. So, you know, we, we either drank or we, you know, got angry or we fought or we, you know, we just did, did all these things to try to lift ourselves up what we thought, you know, in the, in the eyes of society. Yeah. And I think that's a, you know, Interesting. I think coming back to like my original thought process there is I think mm. there is a time and a place where that can be beneficial, right? Like where mm-hmm. you can, you can kind of not show your, I don't know, maybe in a tough situation, like where you're, you know, I don't even know, like, I can't even really think of a good example, but there's a, you know, maybe there's a situation where it's like, you kind of have to shed your emotions, become a leader yeah. and help people yeah. get through a tough situation. So in that respect, it can be very, very beneficial, right? But then on the other mm-hmm. hand, I think back to, I think tying back to this idea that we were talking about earlier and how do you walk that line of understanding like what's toxic and what's beneficial, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's where, again, like I, you know, you see a lot of, when we look at kind of the traditional roles i mean there i think there are things mm-hmm. that like i don't necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because i think that there are benefits but also realizing that maybe you know there are also females out there that have the same thought process right that maybe mm-hmm. you know also the same way not showing emotion and, and doing some things same things so it's very complicated but it yeah it's just uh I don't even, I can't even process it. Cause there's just like so many, the more I think about it, the more complex it is. And I guess like yeah. our good friend, like our good friend, Josh says like human problems are very complicated ones. Right. And yeah. there is no easy answer. There isn't a, yep. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah. And I, I guess that's the reason why I love about this project is at least mm-hmm. being able to talk to people about these really complicated problems. So getting right. off that, cause I don't know if I, I don't know where the heck I'm going with that. Cause it, it is a very complicated problem, but what I'm also wondering is, is now that you, you know, what are you, as we kind of come to the end here, we try to land this ship. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are you trying, what are you focusing on now? What are you doing? You know, what are you trying to really? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. And I appreciate you uh, asking that is that really my, you know, what, what myself and countless other veterinarians and mental health professionals are trying to do in our profession is, how do we impart the tools to veterinary professionals to process all of the challenges that come with the practice of veterinary medicine? So the things, you know, we go into vet school, we're taught an inordinate amount of facts and differential diagnoses and, and uh, tasks 
that we do. Um, but how do we, how do we frame quote unquote failure? You know, how do we, if, if we're angry or if we're something, or if a client says something like, and we internalize it, like how, how can we process through that? What I'll say is here is not, I'm not diminishing some of the, the issues that are in veterinary medicine at all, you know, not, not diminishing the student debt, uh, issues, um, some of these external things. What I would say though, is, is to this point is that we have some control over, you know, our, our well-being if we, we use some of these interventions. So we talk about the term resiliency. That's, that's what I learned in 12 step recovery is, you know, is how to, how can I bounce back from things? Doesn't mean that I don't process it. Doesn't mean that it's not challenging, but the things that I go through today would have, I, I couldn't have gone through them, you know, 12 years ago. So what we're trying to do today is, is impart skills of resiliency. Um, that's a, a sense of realistic optimism. That is not uh, to use the term toxic again, toxic positivity, where everything is, is happy and joyous and it's happyology and all that. It is not, it is just saying here is, here is this, <clears throat> this external situation are there ways that I can frame this? So it's not, you know, if something bad happens that it's not going to happen all the time, you know, that I'm a bad person because this happened, you know, is how do we re learn to reframe that? Um, gratitude is a, is another one. Um, you know, the tools of, of uh, causal analysis, you know, this, this event happens. I have, I respond in this way. Interesting to know how, you know, how did I get there? How did I get there from, you know, a, an unemotional event or something that, that happened, um, you know, how I respond to it. Um, also, uh, you know, looking at worry, you know, how, how we kind of get some runaway train thinking, um, you know, and, and causes anxiety. And then communication and emotional intelligence. How do we communicate with, with owners, uh, you know, of pets? Um, you know, and how do we, how do we communicate with each other and support each other and then supportive, uh, uh, social networks, you know, building all these up. So doing that in a university setting, which the AAVMC is, is doing that. We're doing that at the university of Florida. Um, and then also the, uh, FEMA, the Florida veterinary medical association, grateful to be the chair of the wellbeing committee. We're trying to impart that to our, our professionals and then working with Josh, um, and some other veterinary well-being uh, professionals uh, in the country trying to get us all together, uh, you know, to, to move forward in the right direction. So veterinary medicine is an awesome profession to be a part of. I need it. I did not feel that way until I had these tools um, to get me through it. You know, I, you know, had nothing to do with my clinical acumen. Um, or my ability to perform surgery or anything like that. I needed these other tools to learn, learn how to enjoy life and to learn how to enjoy uh, veterinary medicine as a whole. Yeah. You know, and uh, what, what I would love, for, you know, <clears throat> love for you to touch on a little bit, maybe give some tips to maybe practice managers or owners that are listening out there. Mm -hmm. Cause you touched on this idea of psychological safety. And for me and what, in what Luca tries to do is huge. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because the worst thing that can happen for us is that a staff member doesn't feel safe going to their leadership yes. to say, Hey, right. I think I made a mistake. And yes. then one, yes. you know, and for us in cybersecurity and data protection and kind of it as a whole, 
the faster we can react and the faster we can, we can put our instant respond plans in place, you know, we can greatly mitigate the damages that come out of that mistake. Right. And we've seen far too often where, you know, I, 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 and I'll give this example is uh, there was one hospital I was talking with and the practice manager had, or not the practice manager, but the receptionist had accidentally clicked on an email and it downloaded some malicious code and then it just spread through the network. Right. Yeah. And it took, it took probably about an hour for it to spread through the entire hospital, but the receptionist didn't go to management. And when I was asking the manager, I was like, why? And she's like, well, you know, she's like, because she's an idiot, you know, like I mm. clearly could tell that this was, this was a fake email. I have no idea why she clicked on it. And then she's like, I don't know why she didn't tell anybody. And as I'm listening to her, listening to her yeah. tell this story, I'm like, yes. I understand why, why, because of how yeah. you're reacting. Yes. So, yeah. you know, this is a really important topic for us at least mm -hmm. as an organization and something yeah. we're trying to change. So I would love to hear like, what are some things, you know, what are one or two tips that people could do today to start really embodying this like psycho idea of psychological mm. safety within the practice? Uh, so that is a, it, there's a ton, a ton there. Um, one is, is what you just said is really the, the best advice that I can give is as a leader, do you have an honest ability to know how your staff responds to you when something happens and how do you, how do you respond to it? Um, and you know, the, the second thing is being aware. Uh, the, the other thing that potentially uh, could be helpful just for a single tip um, is during, uh, during meetings, um, ask, have an outside observer just come in and just who has no skin in the game, anything like that, um, and get a feel of the room, you know, just, just somebody, cause a lot of time, like you just said, um, you know, a lot of times an outside observer can just see dynamics that we, we can't necessarily see in and of ourselves, but being open to whatever that person has to say, you know, is that, you know, if they come to you and go, you know, it, it felt like you were, you know, you kind of shut that person down. And then, you, and then if you're like, oh, well, that's I did it because, you know, it's there's your problem. You know, it's the, that's, you know, you're guess what? You're the you're the problem. Um, but it's it's just really important as far as delivering care. I mean, that's just a big thing, um, you know, even in the university setting, you know, in a clinic setting and academic medicine, just very high pressure you know, when the students are learning, um, you know, is that if they're shut down, you know, aggressively, uh, you know, by, um, you know, by a clinician like that, that has, can have long lasting effects. And so how do we break through that? And they're just starting to do that in human medicine. Um, and so that's, we're hopefully in the next year or so, we're going to be having a, a protocol at the uh, University of Florida, um, you know, that's something in the works. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, you know, it's actually interesting that you bring that up. And I know we're getting to the end here, but I think it just yeah. really resonates is that I was just at the Vet Partners Conference and mm -hmm. there was a panel and it was kind of this idea <clears throat> of culture and all that stuff. And it was mm -hmm. interesting to listen to the, there are two vet students on the call and to listen yeah. to them talk about doing, is it your clinicals? Is that what it's called? Yep. Or you like right. go and work mm -hmm. in a practice? 
to them talk about how they were like putting in 14 hour days or whatever. And they, mm-hmm. you know, they would even just to even express the fact that they were tired or that they were a little bit worn out. Right. They couldn't even express that. It was, they were like, yeah, every time I, like, I, I never wanted to say like, oh man, I'm tired. I'm not sure if I should do this. Cause I'm, you know, I've been here all day maybe even from a safety standpoint, I shouldn't do this. But if I admit yeah. that I'm tired, they're going, you know, they kept getting the response at like the hospital or the other, the other doctors like, Oh, well, you don't clearly, you really don't want to be here, you know? Yeah. And it's like, no, that's not the case. It's not that I don't want to be here. It's that I've right. been here for far too long. Right. And my right. body's starting to break down. And I'm just getting tired. It's not the fact that I don't yeah. want to be here, you know? And it's that argument, what, what you just said, it's that argument of, in our own mind, not our own mind, but, you know, in some clinicians, mind, it's like, well, I did that, you know, I did it. It's like, well, a couple things is that, no, you, you know, we didn't, um, you know, there, there's, a, you know, a huge amount more information, you know, what is it in medicine now, like the, the, our level or our, the amount of information that we know doubles in three years. Yeah. So it's, it's just apples to apple or apples to oranges. And, what is your definition of a success? Like that you didn't, you didn't have a, you know, a break, um, you know, is that just, just because you made it like, you know, it's not like just cause you crossed the finish line, there was, that was the best way to do it. You know, is that, that, that's where I hope we can rethink this is just cause we survived and, you know, and didn't, I mean, it's, it's, it's not the, you know, the ends don't justify the means, you know, it's not a Machiavellian type type story. So I hope, I hope we can kind of reframe that and say, yeah, being up for 14 hours, um, you know, in, in a high stress situation does not put us in the, in the best place for our cognitive ability. Um, you know, any of that, that doesn't make us a, that that's not a good, you know, doesn't make us a good, good clinician. So yeah. Well, Phil, I feel like we could keep going, but I know you got more important things to do than to spend your <laughs> evening with me. But man, I really appreciate it. Uh, this was an yeah. amazing conversation, and I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. We're going to have to do a, a follow up and yeah, absolutely, and, uh, love to and keep going because I think even just on the idea of psychological safety, I think there's a lot that to to be dug into there. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, how to really make an impact. So, with that being said, is there anything you want to promote or? anything you want people to know about or to, that they can find out more about you or how they can kind of better, you know, better implement some of this uh, positive psychology within their practice. Yeah. Just get, I mean, just really on a personal level, getting, getting curious about that, um, you know, and as far as well being goes and, you know, it's not just uh, you know, med- I mean, meditation is fantastic, but really getting into a lot of these tools of uh, you know, of resiliency of, you know, learning, learning how we think, how we process things, learning about ourselves. Um, And just, you know, two things is just being gentle with one another. You know, sometimes we, you know, it's really easy via social media to chop down, you know, a colleague or or even an owner, you know, it's just so, you know, seeing a lot of that, uh, that friction. Um, And uh, yeah, and just, just seeking support. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Phil. It was amazing. Thanks. Um, yeah, if there's anything I can do to return the favor, please don't yeah, hesitate to ask. It. But yeah, man, I appreciate it. And let's uh, let's yep. definitely stay in contact, man. I greatly appreciate cool. your time tonight. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Clint. Awesome. Thank you, All sir. Right. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.